Okay, praise the Lord. If you're joining us here in person, of course, you'll see it on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, you'll see it on the screen at home. But 2 Peter 3, 11 through 18. Okay, this is God's word. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, you are truly glorious, and we thank you, Father, during this Thanksgiving season, Lord. And as we worshiped you, Lord God, thank you for bringing to mind through those songs and through those lyrics what you did for us. That you truly gave the most immeasurable gift of all, which is your very self. So, Lord God, along with that gift, how will you not also, with your Son, give us all things? And so, Lord God, thank you. Thank you, Lord. We will, for all eternity, thank you. And, Lord God, I pray and ask that as we are gathered here now, Lord, for those who are here during the holidays, uh, Father, please meet us. Please speak to us through this word. Father, open up your word to us and show us, Father, your truth. Father, establish us in your truth for your word is truth. So we thank you, Lord God. Be with all those who are away. Uh, We pray that they are enjoying their time with family and friends, getting a little break. Uh, Refresh them, uh, be with them, and we await the return. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, last week we began looking at the closing verses of 2 Peter, and we finally came to the end of this very fascinating little letter. And in these closing verses, we saw how Peter was drawing a logical and necessary conclusion to everything he said before in the letter, and specifically in chapter 3. And we know that Peter was doing this, that he was actually bringing everything to a logical and necessary conclusion. How? Because he was using these little words. I mentioned them last week. But he mentioned the words since and therefore. And we know that when people use these words, since and therefore, they're drawing a logical and necessary conclusion to what they said before. We know that because we know English. That's how we use these words. But for example, you might say, since I ate too much during Thanksgiving, I need to exercise. Or you might say, I ate too much during Thanksgiving, therefore, I need to exercise. So either way, you know that those words are pointing to a logical and necessary conclusion. So Peter is doing that here in these verses, but he is using these words, since and therefore, in the same way. But based on everything that he has said before, earlier in chapter 3, and in fact, even throughout the letter, he is now drawing a logical and necessary conclusion to what he said before. And what was Peter's logical and necessary conclusion? Well, Peter summed it up pretty nicely with this one question in verse 11. But this is what we started looking at last week. But Peter asked, what sort of people ought you to be in holiness and godliness? So that's the big question. In light of the great day of the Lord that is coming, When Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, to conquer his enemies, when the heavens and the earth will be melted down and renewed, when Jesus establishes his eternal kingdom, in light of all of that, what kind of people should we be in holiness and godliness? And Peter's question is not some vague question, kind of left for theologians, but this is very, very practical. Because when Peter said, what kind of people should we be in holiness and godliness, those words holiness and godliness literally mean holy conduct, godly living. 
So in light of Jesus' return and the great day of the Lord that is coming, what kind of people should we be practically in holy conduct and godly living? See, this is a very practical issue. And we're not just talking about right before Jesus comes, what are you going to do, right? But we're talking about today and every day. This is Peter's focus. This is his concern. And who really is asking this question nowadays? Okay, who's really focused on this? Nobody. But I thought about this this past week. But there is not a single classroom, boardroom, government building, media company, or institution in the world that is asking this question. And that includes false teachers in false churches. But none of them are asking this question, let alone even thinking about this question. And so as we're wrapping this series up, I want you to really think about what about me, though? Right? How about you? Is this something that you even consider or think about? And yet there couldn't be a greater question with greater consequences. And that's why the vast majority of people who ignore this question are going to be caught off guard. Because when Jesus suddenly and unexpectedly comes back, they are going to be devastated. And this is exactly what Peter wants us to avoid. This is what he doesn't want for believers. And so out of a great shepherd's heart, Peter lays out six different ways that believers can avoid this, how believers can be prepared for Jesus' coming on that great day. And so this is what we began looking at last week, but the six ways that we can become the kind of people who are ready for Jesus' coming. So what are these six ways? Well, first, we need to become an eternally-minded people. Second, a watchful people. Third, a diligent people. Fourth, a discerning people. Fifth, a growing people. And then sixth, a God-glorifying people. Okay, these are the six ways that we can practically, practically begin to be prepared. And so last week, we went through the first three. We talked about becoming an eternally-minded people, knowing that the end is coming in an unexpected, sudden, cataclysmic way. God will judge the living and the dead, so we should invest in what's going to last. Don't invest in what's going to burn up. So becoming an eternally-minded people. Then we looked at becoming a watchful people, becoming spiritually awake, okay, becoming aware of our sins and living a life that is ready and prepared, being prayerful, continuously communicating with God. So we talked about that. And then finally, being a diligent people, applying the gospel to ourselves regularly and then sharing the gospel. And so today, we're going to wrap this entire series up, and then next week, we're going to start looking at a new Advent series. Excited for that. But today, we're going to wrap this series up by looking at the last three ways we can be prepared. And so here they are. We need to become a discerning people, a growing people, and a God-glorifying people. So this is going to be it. Okay, we're going to be done. Okay, so finally, number four. This is the fourth way we can become prepared is to become a discerning people. So look at verse 17. Okay, verse 17. Peter said, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So here, Peter is circling back to what he said earlier in the letter, especially in chapter 2. So now, as he's closing out this letter, he's going to be repeating himself. So you're going to notice that with these last three things we're going to talk about. But here, he's pointing out again that there will be false teachers and false teachings among us. In fact, they are already here. And he said, know this beforehand, knowing this beforehand. Okay, knowing what? Well, if you look at the verse right before in verse 16, he tells us. He says, knowing that there are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter was saying there will be people who twist the scriptures. So again, he's talking about these false teachers. He's going back to that topic. And so they're going to take the scriptures, for example, like Paul's writings, and because they're kind of hard to understand, you've got to be careful when you study the Bible. And that's why I don't agree with these churches where they just kind of, you know, say, oh, yeah, we're all just going to share what we believe and just kind of talk about it, and then we're just going to end our Bible study. No, 
We actually need people who study the scriptures and share that with others. We need teachers. We need good Bible study material. But people take the scriptures, and because they're hard to understand, they twist them. For example, Paul's writings on God's grace is glorious, what he says on God's grace. But you can misunderstand that sometimes. Also, Paul's teachings on the prophecies about Jesus' coming. Those are also hard to understand. Not impossible, but difficult. So you have to be careful how you handle them. And yet false teachers, they just kind of come in, they take this verse and that verse, and then they twist them like they do all the scriptures. And by the way, as a side note, notice how Peter called Paul's writing scripture. I remember taking a class on this, how the Bible attests to itself that it is scripture. So the apostles knew that God was guiding them to write scripture. So when Paul started writing his letters, he knew that they were, they were scripture. So their writings didn't become scripture over time through the tradition of the church. No, as the apostles were writing them out and giving them to the churches, they knew they were writing scripture. What a huge responsibility. But anyway, Peter called Paul's writing scripture, like all the other scriptures. And there were false teachers and followers who twisted them. In other words, they made them mean whatever they wanted them to mean. And Peter called people who do this lawless people in verse 17. Lawless means without principle. They have no desire for truth and integrity guiding them. There's no love of God motivating them. They're morally corrupt. They have no principle. They are lawless. And earlier in verse 16, Peter called them ignorant and unstable. So they're not only just doing whatever they want, they're lawless, but they are ignorant. They don't know God or his word. They don't know the gospel or his power. Although they attend church, they call themselves believers. They might even be leaders in the church, and yet they don't really know God. They don't have spiritual knowledge. They're ignorant. And because of that, they are also unstable. Why? Because they don't really know the truth of God, they're not guided by that. Rather, they are led by their sinful desires. So they go from teacher to teacher. They go from church to church. They go from movement to movement. And they're looking for the very next thing that's going to tickle their ears. Whatever their flesh is looking for, that's where they're going to go. And we know people like that. Maybe we were like that. But you know what? I don't know. This church isn't really doing it for me because I'm looking for something. My flesh is looking for something. So I go to this place and then I go to this other place. And so that's the picture here. They are unstable. So Peter warned that these kinds of people are everywhere, even inside the church, even in the pulpit, and there are going to be more and more of them, not less and less, as Jesus' return draws near. And this is why Peter said we must become discerning. So this is the fourth way we're going to be prepared for his coming. We must be discerning. Again, as I'm talking about all this, this should be familiar We've talked about this for weeks and weeks earlier in this letter. But we must become discerning. He said in verse 17, take care. Okay, that's where you get that, that point about being discerning. But take care. In other words, be vigilant. Be on guard. Watch out. It's all the same meaning. Take care that you are not carried away. That phrase carried away, it means being swept away by a current. Kind of like if you're in the river. You know, back when I was in high school, I almost died. <laughs> but I lived in Sacramento, and we all jumped into the river. My friends were like, hey, let's swim across the American River. And I was a very poor swimmer, and I said, sure, why not? And we all jumped in, and immediately this whirlpool pulled me away. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't die. Here I am. <laughs> but as I started drifting down the river, I had no hope of getting across. A boat kind of came beside me and said, hey, are you okay? I'm like, Obviously not. And so they pulled me into the boat. But I almost drowned. But that's the picture I, I get when I hear this phrase, carry it away. You just jump into this movement. You start attending this church. Whew, you get carried away. I've seen that many times. So these people are carried away who don't take care. So P Peter said, take care that this is not you, that you are not swept away by the error of lawless people and lose your stability. So here Peter is saying listening to unstable people will cause you to become unstable. This is how you get swept away. 
So these are all clear warnings that Peter has given before. So then what's the point of him mentioning it again here at the very end? Well, the point is Peter wants to make sure that believers will not ultimately fall away from the faith at Jesus' return draws near. He just wants to make sure once and for all as he wraps up this letter. In fact, this is the final letter he's going to ever write. This is towards the end of his life. But he just wants to make sure I'm reminding you, please do not fall away because you lack discernment and you're going to get swept away by error and false teaching. Why? Because Jesus' return is drawing near. Do not be swept away. That is the worst thing that can happen to somebody. To be in a church for years and years only to fall away as Jesus returns. It's kind of like having a train ticket in your desk drawer for years and years and years. And then finally the day comes for you to get on that train and go on this trip. And then as the train pulls into the station, you lose the ticket. Right? That's the picture here. You lose the ticket as the train pulls in and you miss it completely. And so Peter is saying, I don't want that to happen to you. For you to be a Christian, so-called Christian, and go to church for years and years, and then at the end, fall away, be drawn away. Now, please don't misunderstand. You should know this if you've been coming here for years, for a while. But the Bible teaches God's sovereignty and salvation. It teaches the endurance of the saints. We believe that once you're truly saved, you will remain saved. The New Testament says the good work God began in you, he will do what? Complete it. Nobody can snatch you out of my hand, Jesus said. And yet, so all those things are true. And yet, the New Testament repeatedly warns people can fall away from the faith that they claim to have, proving that they never had the faith. So that's a reality. You literally can go to church for years and years and years, grow up your entire life in church, go to church until you're 50, and then suddenly fall away and then never be saved. That can happen. 1 John 2, they went out from us showing they were never a part of us. And so that can happen. Peter saw that firsthand. He witnessed that in the early church. So the warning to not fall away from the faith is real. And this is why the New Testament repeatedly gives it. And so here Peter gave this warning. Earlier in the letter, if you remember, at the end of chapter 2, he gave this clear warning It is far better to never have known Christ than to say you knew him, to actually be a Christian, quote-unquote, and then fall away. That is far worse. And so you see this all throughout the Bible, all throughout the New Testament. Jesus gave this warning as well, Matthew 24, 8 through 11. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. He's talking about the events leading up to the Great Tribulation. All these are just the beginning of sorrows, the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then listen. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. You guys, that's happening in the future of us. That's not behind us. That's coming up. There is going to be a greater and greater deception causing a greater and greater falling away, Jesus said. In fact, Paul says something very similar in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, probably referring to the same falling away Jesus just mentioned, but this is what Paul said. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, the great day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. That word rebellion is literally apostia, apostasy, until literally the apostasy or the great falling away comes first. And the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction. So again, that's future of us. That's not behind us. But Paul is repeating, I believe, what Jesus said in Matthew 24. He's saying there's a great falling away that's coming before the great coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. So this warning to not fall away from the faith is repeated throughout the New Testament. And this warning is more and more urgent, not less, as Jesus' return draws near. You know, I remember reading the sad words of popular pastor and author Joshua Harris. Do you guys remember him? But one day, he actually posted this online on social media, but he said to the surprise of everybody that he is leaving the faith. And I remember listening to him off and on, but he was a regular contributor and guest on the Gospel Coalition website. But this is what he wrote back in 2019, very recent. 
Harris said, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away, what we just talked about. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian, full stop. He just said straight up, I am not a Christian anymore. Many people tell me there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I am not there now. We need to pray for him. But this is a man who taught the Bible weekly. Think about that. He's not just some churchgoer. He was a pastor of a megachurch. He taught the Bible weekly. His sermons were watched thousands of times online. He appeared on the Gospel Coalition website countless times. He wrote many Christian books who, that edified the body of Christ. Think about that. I mean, I remember hearing testimonies of pastors who read his books and were deeply edified and actually shared it in sermons. This is the kind of man we're talking about, and yet here he is now saying, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Christian. Paul said, if you think you're standing, be careful that you don't fall. If you think you are standing, be careful that you don't fall. Now, again, I would never say something to cause you to doubt. I feel obligated when I read scripture. I feel obligated to warn you, you need to be very careful. Again, I don't care if you grew up in a Christian home, you went to church your whole life, you very well in the near future might say, you know what, I don't believe in this anymore. I've shared this many times, but I have heard increasingly over the years, because I'm getting older now. Well, two things, it's very sad, but I've, every year that goes by, I hear more and more friends that I knew who, got, who are getting divorced, and then I'm also literally heard of fellow Christians who went to missions with me. We cried out on the mission field, God, work powerfully, bring salvation on the mission field, and then now, they don't even go to church. They don't follow Christ. And so we must be careful. Again, Paul said, if you think you're standing, be careful that you don't fall. So then what do we do? Well, here's the best way to protect yourself from falling in the last days. You must grow in discernment. Amen? You must become a discerning person against false teaching. This is not an option, but this is absolutely mandatory. But how are we going to do that? By growing in your love for Christ and the truth. So the fourth thing that we must become is be a discerning person, but this leads directly into the fifth point, which is becoming a growing people, a growing person. And specifically, we're talking about growing in your love for Christ and the truth. Look at verse 18. Peter says in the first part of verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is not an isolated command, but that command comes directly after his warning to be discerning in verse 17. They're connected. So he gives a strong call. You need to watch out. You need to take care that you're not swept away. And then immediately after, he says, grow. How are you going to become discerning and not be swept away? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And why is that connection so important? Because as a believer grows in their love for Christ and the truth, they can fight off destructive heresies and false teachings. Isn't that true? I remember there was a brother, he doesn't come here anymore, but, but we met initially uh, in the neighborhood. I started meeting with him, shared the gospel. He actually came to faith and came to our church, became a leader in our church. But I remember in the very beginning when he first came to faith, he started going to a Mormon church at the same time as coming to Promise. I'm <laughs> like, what? Where are you going? What are you doing? But he was a total baby Christian. He had no idea. He's like, oh, yeah, I was on the campus. Somebody invited me to this group, and they're called Mormon. And I thought it was kind of cool, and I started going there. I'm like, hey, man, you come to Promise. Don't go to, more, don't go to a Mormon church, right? But that was him as a baby Christian, but now he's very established in the faith. I met him recently, and, and he seems like he's going strong. I can't know for sure. I haven't talked to him in a long time. But he grew over the years in his ability to discern. Why? Because he simply just grew in his love for the truth, in his love for Christ. So this is what Peter's talking about. As believers grow in their love for Christ and the truth, they can fight off false teachings and heresies more easily. It's kind of like a young child who grows up physically. As they grow physically, their immune system also grows along with them. It grows stronger together. So in the same way, the best way that you're going to 
stand in the last days and fight off heresies is grow. You focus on growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So first, growing in our knowledge of the truth of Christ. I'm going to take the second one first, but Peter mentions grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this knowledge is an intimate knowledge. It's a deep understanding of who Christ is and what he taught. Pastors say this all the time, but it's not just head knowledge. It begins there, but it's kind of like the knowledge you have of your your friend or a spouse. But it's an intimate knowledge. And because Jesus is the living word of God, he is accurately represented by the written word of God. Jesus is the living word. And so how do you know who he is? Look at the written word. This is the reflection of who Jesus is. So if you want to know Christ, the living word, you have to know Christ through the written word. You must know the word. And not only know it, but you have to love it. You must love the word. And this is why you have people who learn the Bible for years and years and years, going to church for decades, and then one day they fall away. Again, this is how you get a Joshua Harris. And I still hope and pray that he'll come back one day. But this is how you get a Joshua Harris who literally even taught the word accurately. I thought he was a good Bible teacher. He was gospel-centered, Christ-centered, and yet he's not a Christian anymore. Why? Because people know the word, but they don't love the word. They don't love the word. And yet this is absolutely vital if you're going to stand in the last days and not fall away. You must know the word in order to know Christ, and you must love the word, which will lead to loving Christ. But listen to Paul. He said in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, The coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. And so why are people deceived and perishing by the Antichrist? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Do you hear that? So the Antichrist is going to come. Somebody asked me recently, is he a real person? Yes, the Bible repeatedly calls him a man, the one, the lawless one. There is a spirit of Antichrist, many historical figures that foreshadowed Antichrist, but there is a literal man coming, Antichrist. The consummation of the evil we've seen. But when he comes, why are so many going to follow him and be deceived? It's not because they don't know the truth. That's not what Paul said. It's because they refuse to love the truth. They might know their Bible inside and out. Again, he to keep using Harris as an example, but he's such a clear example. But even teach the Bible, maybe even pastors, and yet they never love the truth. And brothers and sisters, more and more, this is really becoming the dividing line between Christians and churches and entire denominations. I don't know what it is, but especially since covid maybe even a little bit prior to COVID, leading up to COVID, but especially since COVID, there really has been a new dividing line separating different camps and groups of Christians and churches and denominations. But I remember in the past when I was younger, the dividing line was often drawn between modes of baptism, right? Do you baptize babies? Do you not baptize babies? Maybe philosophies of ministry. Do you meet in a bar? Do you meet in a traditional church? You know, things like that. Maybe views on certain topics like spiritual gifts. Do you believe in the miraculous gift not, or not? So a lot of times the dividing lines were between those things. But now in our rapidly changing world, with the rise of radical ideologies, all the stuff in our culture, the rise of pagan beliefs, global Islam, totalitarianism, increased attacks on biblical Christianity. In this new world that we're living in, the dividing line has really come down to this. Do you love the truth of God in Scripture and submit to it? Or do you love something else? It really is that. And I've seen that time and time again online of people just leaving denominations, leaving certain groups, even Christians leaving certain churches. Why? Well, they don't really love what this church loves. Okay, I love the scriptures, but they don't seem to love the scriptures anymore. Or the church leaves a denomination because we really love something else, but they seem to cling to this old-fashioned Bible. And so that is the dividing line. So do you love the truth of God and scripture and submit to it, or do you love something else more? 
Peter said, grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice Peter didn't say just Savior, but he said Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you love and submit yourself to the Lord? Yes, he's Savior. Yes, he's a friend. But Lord, to the Lord and his truth, this is by far the best way you're going to protect yourself from destructive heresies. And yet many in the churches do not love the Lord and his truth. That's not even why they come to church. You know, several weeks ago, we spent time looking at different false teachings today. I feel like we maybe spent a little bit too much time, but I don't regret going through these things because we need to make Peter's warnings real in our situation today. But we looked at things like neo-paganism, cultural Marxism. We touched a little bit on the prosperity gospel. And in each of these false teachings, there is a love motivating people. I don't know if you guys caught that when we were going through those false teachings. But there is a love that motivates people that is not a love for the truth. There is. And because of that, many Christians in these movements twist the scriptures to promote what they love more than God's truth. And yes, there are a lot of Christians in these false movements, these false belief systems. A lot of Christians. And when you look at what they're saying and what they're writing and what they're doing, they have twisted the scriptures in order to promote what they love more than God's truth. So, for example, neo-paganism is often the love for power and control over your life. That's what often sucks people into that. But they're struggling in some area and they're trying to find power and control in their lives, maybe their finances, maybe their love life, and then they seek it out in neo-paganism. And there are a lot of Christians in these movements who even call themselves Christian witches. But even if you don't call yourself a Christian witch, there are a lot of Christians in these movements who will twist the scriptures to promote what they really love, which is not the truth. But they're promoting things like, oh yeah, power and control over your life and God can do this for you. And and so they take the Bible and then they use it for that. In cultural Marxism, it's often love for equity and justice for oppressed groups more than a love for the truth that motivates Christians in these groups. And so we talked a lot about that. Now, yes, we must defend the oppressed and lift up their cause, but never at the expense of truth. And this is what a lot of Christians, especially young Christians, don't seem to understand. They just have this sense of, okay, justice and fairness and equity, and then they kind of shoot off trying to promote and defend all these things, getting sucked into different causes, and yet they never give consideration. Is this true, though? Is this what God teaches in his word? And so they ignore the truth, or they give up on the truth. And because they give up on the truth, that is not love. If you don't give them the truth, these oppressed groups, or these groups that you're trying to support, then you're not loving them. That is not love. And yet many of these Christians in these cultural Marxist groups, they twist the scriptures to affirm things that God does not affirm. Things like a homosexual lifestyle. They simply see them as an oppressed group and I'm just going to support them. Or suppressing speech that questions transgenderism. Again, that's an oppressed group, I'm just going to support them. And so this is happening. And then finally regarding the prosperity gospel which, by the way, is still very alive and well today under the guise of cool Christianity. (laughs) I heard heard that's a new thing, but cool Christianity. But it's still the prosperity gospel, the same old message in a different garb. But in this prosperity gospel camp, it's a love for the self that motivates Christians more than a love for the truth. And it's so evident once you kind of go in there and start seeing what people are all about, it is a love for the self. You know, early this morning, I really believe God said this to me, but I got this text from someone. I usually don't get texts five in the morning, but when I woke up early this morning, I saw this text, but it was sent to me very early, and it was a link to a podcast. The person who sent it is somebody who used to go to our church. He doesn't come here anymore. He moved to Texas, but he sent me this link to a podcast on this very topic of cool, relevant Christianity and how it's leading many into apostasy. So I'm like, okay. Wow. So I clicked on it, listened to it. And at one point, the podcast basically asked this question. But why do the most popular preachers today draw such large crowds and why do audiences eat up their messages? A very straightforward question. Why are they so popular? And here's what the podcast said. And I quote, 
The answer is simple. The audience wants a sermon that is about them. They want to learn about themselves. They think every aspect of church should focus on them. And so do these preachers. It's why audiences are drawn to cool preachers. They want someone who is relevant so they can learn how to be relevant. Self-obsessed audiences love to listen to a preacher who is self-obsessed. I'll say that again. Self-obsessed audiences love to listen to a preacher who is self-obsessed. Why? Because they come up and all they talk about is themselves. And they twist the scriptures and make it all about them. And so they eat that up. Now the Bible has a lot to say about who you are. Absolutely. It has a lot to say about the kind of life God wants you to live. But it's always in the greater context of who God is and what he has done. That is always the focus. That is always the context. It's not just some random verse ripped out of context. Oh, yeah, God's going to bless your life if you just believe this. But who is God? What has he done? When you understand that truly, then yes, your life begins to change. There is genuine glory, genuine power. Okay, that is the truth that we need. So these are all the different loves that people often have when they come to church. And I want us to genuinely examine ourselves. Okay, what do you have when you come to church? Okay, what are you desiring? Okay, do you come to church because you truly love the Lord and his truth? Or is there something else you love? Maybe you love yourself. Maybe you come to church to hear things about yourself. Again, that's not wrong per se because God will speak about you. But do you have a greater love though? Do you have a greater love for the Lord and his truth? And if you, even if you don't have that love in your heart right now, do you desire to have it? And that's why you come to church. You know, I don't really love God right now or his word, but I want to, though. And that's why I come. Is that you? Well, I pray it is. And this is the kind of church that the elders and I talk about. When we meet together, we talk about the kind of church that we want to become. And this is what we talk about. This is what we pray about. That we would be a church that is deeply rooted in God's word and his truth. Before anything else, this will mark our church, that we love the word. We don't just learn it and study it like every good Christian should, but we come to love it. We have banked our entire lives upon it. And because of that, there is also the power of the Spirit. It's not just about an intellectual knowledge, but there is also the evidence of the power of the Spirit who works through that word. He is at work as we come to love and learn the word. And the Spirit is changing us. He's doing things that we cannot do. So this is what we want to become. So growing in our love for the Lord and his truth. But there's something else. Peter also mentions growing in the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So do we need to grow in the truth and love the truth? Yes. But we also need to grow in the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And again, Peter here is circling back to what he said earlier. He's actually going all the way back to the beginning of the letter. Because if you look in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, you see this topic of grace come up again. But all the way back at the very beginning, chapter 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained the faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, who called us to his own glory and excellence. So in the close of the letter, Peter is pointing back to the grace that he mentioned at the very beginning of the letter. He goes all the way back. It's the grace that he himself and the other apostles received through their faith in Jesus Christ. Peter says, now this is the same grace you have. And it's not just a little bit of grace, but Peter said it's a grace that's multiplied throughout your life. It's grace upon grace, kind of like waves coming upon the beach. It just keeps coming, grace upon grace. It's the grace that gave Peter and every other believer the righteousness of God and Christ. So no matter what sins you've committed, even this past week, if you are a believer, if you have repented and come back to him, you are covered in the righteousness of Christ right now as we speak. This is God's immeasurable grace. It's also the grace that has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, Peter says. Think about that. You have everything you need already to grow in Christ and to make it to the end. 
to not fall away. If you are a true believer, you have everything you already need to make it, to be in eternity with Christ one day. It's the grace that has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so if you remember, all the way back to the beginning of this series, that's the grace, that is the foundation God has laid. Do you remember that? That is the foundation that he has laid. It is not a foundation that you went and built on your own, found on your own. It is a foundation God gave to you that he has laid. It is the grace of Jesus Christ and the salvation he bought with his blood. That's the foundation we're talking about. Jesus did it. He gave it to us as a gift. And along with that, God gave us also all the resources we need. Remember, we talked about how it's kind of like building a building. Your Christian life is like building this tall building on a foundation that God gave you, the foundation of God's grace. And on top of that, he also gave you all the resources, all the guidance you'll need, all the power you'll need, everything you need, the power you need to now build on it, this life of godliness. So Peter's just kind of pointing back to that. And so after pouring out his grace upon our lives, God now expects us to do what? To just kick back in faith? Oh, it's just grace, right? I'm going to be in heaven one day. Just kind of kick back with faith, which is a lot, which is what a lot of Christians do, by the way. But no, Peter says, build. Right? This is what God says. In fact, build. Build on that foundation that I've laid. And so Peter makes that clear. Chapter 1, verses 5, 8 through 9. For this very reason that God is giving you this grace that he's laid, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and then knowledge, and then he just goes on from there. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or build. And he's giving you everything you need to build. And I want you to notice how Peter said what will cause us to stop building a life of godliness. He told us what will stop us from not building, or from building, I should say, well, he told us, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So what will cause us to stop building on this foundation of grace? It is forgetting the grace of God in the gospel. The grace that you received in the first place that caused you to start building in the first place. You forget that? Peter says you're going to stop building. Again, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. You forgot the gospel. Brothers and sisters, so if you're not growing, if you're not moving forward in this life of faith and growing in godliness, building on this foundation of grace, you forgot the grace. You forgot what Jesus did for you. I remember this wise pastor saying one time, every spiritual problem in your life can be traced back to unbelief in the gospel. That is true. You know, last week I talked about how I still struggle with, you know, becoming offended sometimes, especially with my family members, but I get offended every now and then, and I struggle with that. And why? Well, that goes all the way back to unbelief in the gospel. I feel like something that I deserve, something that that person should give me, I don't have. So I'm offended, right? I'm upset. Well, I've forgotten. I already have it in Christ. Right? If you're seeking out certain pleasures and you can never shake this habit, this sinful habit of, of this kind of pleasure, let's say it's lust, or maybe this need to be accepted by a community, and you're constantly craving that and it's causing a lot of problems, well, you've forgotten. That's traced all the way back to you forgetting that you already have that in Christ. That in the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. That you have already been brought into the community of Christ. Okay, this is all yours already. You have forgotten that. So now you're not building. Okay, you're stuck. And so what I believe Peter is implying is we need to remember this, and I would add to that, preach it. Preach the gospel to yourself. Continuously go back to it. You must grow not only in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, but also in the grace of Jesus Christ. Okay, preach it to yourself. And not only that, but come to love it. Kind of like the truth of Christ. Come to love the grace of Christ. Don't you love the grace of Christ? We must love the grace of Christ. And as we do, we will grow. So this is the best weapon against falling away. is to just grow. 
as you grow in the truth and love the truth, as you grow in the grace of God and build that life of godliness, you will fend off heresy. Okay, you're not going to end up at a Mormon church. You're not going to leave the promise and end up at a cult. Okay, you will continue to stay the course. But then here's the final thing, and we're going to wrap up this entire series. But there is a sixth quality now, a sixth kind of people we should be, a God-glorifying people, a God-glorifying people. Look at the last part of verse 18. Peter now closes this letter with these words. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. What an interesting phrase, the day of eternity. I believe Peter's talking about the day when Jesus comes back. That will be the first day of eternity. That will be the first day that ushers in the eternal kingdom. That is the day of eternity. So to God be the glory both now and to that day. Amen. And so here Peter is pointing out that the reason why God deserves the glory in the last days, the reason why we should become a God-glorifying people as Jesus' return draws near is because he deserves the glory. Amen. He has done all. We love him. We are satisfied by him. Can we draw near to him? Why? Because he has done it all. And so this is Peter's final remark. He deserves the glory. He laid that foundation of grace for you. He gave you everything you need for a life of holiness and godliness. He has warned you repeatedly against destructive heresies. When he comes on that day, he will rescue you and he will bring you into his eternal kingdom. He has done it all. And because of that, we now give him the glory. Amen? We glorify glorify him. We are a God-glorifying people. And what does that mean? That means that we, no matter what happens in our lives, we will shine who he is to the world. And how do you do that? How do you shine? How do you show the world God's worth? How do you shine that? By loving him? By being satisfied in him? You know, I love this quote. I've mentioned it often, but Arrhenius, early church father, he said, the glory of God is man and woman fully alive. But that's true. John Piper says something very similar. Glorif- how, do you, how do you say it? You are most, he is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Right? That's, his, that's his phrase, right? But it's the same thing. The glory of God is man and woman fully alive. So how do you bring glory to God? How do you shine his worth to the world? By loving him and being satisfied in him. By being fully alive in him. And then the world would say, what's going on with you? Why? Well, it's God. And that brings him glory. You know, I remember uh, last weekend we had our cross-promise dinner and we had a wonderful time in Zion's house. We went there and we had this game where we went around and we, not a game, icebreaker, where we shared, what are you thankful for? And we went around and my kids, they gave good answers. My oldest son and my daughter, they both said the church. I'm like, hey, good, yeah, good answer. <laughs> but then what my youngest son said touched our hearts, my, my wife and I. But he looked at us and he's like, I'm thankful for my mom and dad. <laughs> And right when he said that, I'm like, oh, melted our hearts, right? Jill knows. (laughs) But it melted our hearts. And the reason why is because in that moment, we felt so respected. But more than that, we felt so appreciated, right? We, We felt honored. And it wasn't just about us, but we know our little guy, and we had that connection with him. He's not a little guy anymore. I shouldn't call him that. He's 10. He's a man. He's like, Dad, I'm a young man. I was like, okay. But, but our young man, (laughs) was honoring us publicly. And so how? Is it because he did some incredible things for us? No, he just simply is satisfied. He's thankful for us. And so how are you going to shine God's glory to the world? Be satisfied by him. Amen? Love him. Enjoy him. Draw near to him. Be thankful for him. And so this is Paul, or I'm sorry, Peter's closing words. But in light of everything that Christ has done, give him the glory. Amen. And so as we wrap up this entire series, I was actually surprised. Because as I studied these closing verses, I realized, you know what? This book wasn't as dark and as heavy as I thought it would be. (laughs) Before, when we started the series, I thought it was going to be a pretty heavy book, but very important, right? Very necessary. We live in the last days. A lot of false teaching, a lot of false heresies. And yet, overall, I've come to realize Peter's message at the very end is draw near to Christ. 
For I know him, be satisfied by him, glorify him. And as you do that, you're going to grow and you're going to be protected. And so ultimately, Peter is pointing to Christ and his worth. And so it's a very, very positive message, if I can use that word. And so on this Thanksgiving service, or actually last week was, this is post-Thanksgiving, but during this Thanksgiving season, let us remember to give him the glory and the things. Amen? So let's just come before the Lord. Let's pray as we are wrapping up this entire series. But very encouraged by this letter. But the letter of 2 Peter, what a glorious little book warning us of the grave dangers in the last days of all the false teachers and heresies that are everywhere. And yet, above and beyond that, it is a book pointing us back to Christ and the grace that he has poured out upon our lives and all that he has done for us. He has given us everything for a life of godliness and holiness. All things pertaining to this life and the life to come. And so I love how Peter ended with that word of glorify him. To him be the glory. Both now and on that day of eternity. Thank you, Lord Jesus. So let's just come before him. Do you love the truth? Do you love the Lord who gave you that truth? He is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you know his grace? Have you accepted his grace? Do you love his grace? Not once did Peter say in this letter, you got to figure it out on your own. You better get your act together. You better pull yourself up and, and be a good Christian. Not once. I comb through this letter every week as I studied and prepared. As I comb through this letter, not once did he say that. But always after commanding something very significant, he would point back to the grace of God. Do you know that grace? Let's just come before him right now.